The Lord be with you. So today, being the start of a new year, and also the end of an old, is a day when many of us pause, and we reflect back on what has happened in the past year, and maybe we also look forward. And this act of reflecting back is exactly what the prophet Isaiah says he will do today. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy actions of the Lord, because the Lord has dealt graciously with us. And so, as we look back, many of us look at our past to plan for our future. And the logic is, well, if things worked well for me in the past, they'll probably work well for me in the future. And so I should entrust my future to what has carried me through my past. And we all do this in different levels, right? We do this as individuals, we do this as families, we even do that as a nation, And that's what we see happening in Matthew chapter 2 today. In Matthew chapter 2, we hear of wise men. And what has brought the wise men to where they are is a star. A light shining in the sky leading them from east to west. And the path that they took to follow that star led them to the palace of King Herod in Jerusalem... And there, King Herod's scribes tell the wise men that the newborn king for which they search will be found in Bethlehem. And so the wise men follow the scribes' instructions, and they arrive, sure enough, in Bethlehem, and there they find Jesus. They find Jesus thanks to the path laid out by the stars and by the scribe. And so now they are ready to return back to their home country, And it would only seem sensible to go back by the same way that they came. After all, why not entrust their future to what has carried them in their past? Why not retrace those footsteps following the star that led them to the scribes, that led them to King Herod's palace? After all, King Herod made them promise that when they found the boy for whom they searched, they would tell Herod where he was. And they kind of owe Herod for getting them this far. But here's the problem. King Herod wants to know where the baby is, not because he wants to worship him or give him gifts. King Herod doesn't want a rival for power, He wants to know where this baby is so that he can kill him. Yes, the wise men can go back on the path that they came, but it will cost them Christ. And Joseph, in Matthew 22, he and his family are where they are because of the city of Bethlehem. In most recent terms, Joseph and Mary showed up in Bethlehem because they were required to register for a census, and that was Joseph's hometown. But on a deeper level, Bethlehem is the place where Joseph's family has made their fortune. Going back dozens of generations all the way to Joseph's ancestor, Ruth, who, when she was a foreigner found food in Bethlehem. When she was a stranger, she found shelter in Bethlehem. When she was a widow, she forged a family in Bethlehem. 
her great-grandson, who was also Joseph's ancestor, David, started off in Bethlehem as a simple shepherd. But it was in Bethlehem that he was anointed to become the king of Israel. And even in Joseph's life, Bethlehem is the place where strangers traveling from afar show up at Joseph's doorstep carrying gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, valuable, precious gifts just handed to him. It's like winning the lottery, and it happens in Bethlehem. And so now, Joseph is getting ready to settle down and make a home for himself and his family. And it would only be sensible to do it in Bethlehem, where his family has so often succeeded in the past. Why not entrust his future to what has carried him in the past? Why not retrace his family's footsteps, step into the shoes of his forefather? After all, Bethlehem is his heritage. It's his family legacy. It's a tradition which he is called to carry on. The only problem is that King Herod knows that this baby has been born in Bethlehem. And if the wise men don't tell him which baby it is, he will just go and kill every single child in the city. So yes, Joseph can build a home in the same way and in the same place that his family has but it will cost him Christ. And in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus and his people are where they are because of divine vengeance. Vengeance, first against the Egyptians, who had the Hebrew people enslaved in Egypt, and then against the Babylonians, who forced the Jewish people into exile. Now, when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, there was a pharaoh who decided that they were a threat to national security. And so that pharaoh ordered that every Hebrew boy who was born be thrown into the river Nile. But Moses, as a boy, managed to escape that death, and he led his people to freedom from Egypt by calling down ten plagues on the Egyptians— the tenth plague did to the Egyptians exactly what the Egyptians did to the Hebrews. And it caused the death of every firstborn Egyptian child. Centuries later, the Babylonians came and sacked the city of Jerusalem, violently killing the people there, slaughtering children not only in the city, but in the surrounding countryside. It is this which Matthew references the Jer prophet Jeremiah when he says that there is wailing in Ramah, that's a, a place near Bethlehem, when he talks about Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be consoled, Rachel is one of the mothers of the tribes of Israel. Her children have been killed by these Babylonians, and she refuses to be consoled. But when the Hebrew people are then forced into exile by those Babylonians, they pray in Psalm 137 that what happened to them would happen to the Babylonians. Literally, the end of Psalm 137 is the Jewish people saying to the Babylonians, 
Blessed shall they be who take your infants and dash their heads against rocks. They want vengeance. And it's worked for them in the past. It worked for them in Egypt. Why wouldn't it work for them again? And sure enough, God seems to answer their prayer in the person of King Cyrus of Persia. The Persians come, they overthrow the Babylonians, they destroy them, and then King Cyrus says to the Jewish people, you can return to your homes. And now, Jesus is about to grow up. Is about to grow up in the midst of a rule by a tyrant who is slaughtering God's children once more. It would only be sensible for him to liberate his people through violence. It would only be sensible for him to entrust his future to the past which has carried his people. It would only make sense for him to relive the cycle of violence that has been carried out through the generations. After all, the stories of his people which have been passed down through the centuries are those in which blood is answered with blood. But here's the problem. If Jesus does to Herod's city what Herod has done to Jesus' city, the children who will die are Jewish children, the children of Jerusalem. The children who will die are God's own children the very people that Jesus is called to save. Yes, Jesus can save his people in the way that his people have found freedom for generations, but at the cost of being the Christ, for he cannot save God's people and destroy them at the same time. Each person in Matthew chapter 2 is faced with a choice. A choice to stick with what is tried and true, but which comes at a cost. But a cost that maybe pays for what has carried them through the past. Or to abandon, to abandon what they know to have served for so long and strike out on something new, not knowing where it will lead. And perhaps on this day, when we stand with one foot in the past year and one foot in the year to come, many of you are feeling the same way. Perhaps you look at your life in this past year and you think to yourself, well, I had a job that didn't fulfill. I had friends who were bad influences. I had coping mechanisms for my stress that I know were unhealthy. And maybe I should resolve to make a change, but those things, they got me this far. They carried me as far as I have gotten, even if it was at a great cost. Or maybe you hear your family telling you to be more like one of your siblings. Or maybe you hear them saying that it's your responsibility to carry on the family tradition or live into the family legacy, even though that's not what you feel called to do or who you feel called to be. And you think to yourself, well, it's served my family this far. It's made them successful, even though it might come at a cost to me. Maybe I should do it anyway. Or maybe you look at the mess that our nation is in, and you reminisce about a time when things were simpler and easier, 
And maybe you think to yourself, sure, maybe there were some people who suffered more back in the day, or maybe the prosperity of the many came from the pain of a few, but at least we were stronger as a society. We felt more united. And you think to yourself, maybe we can go back to those policies and those paradigms. Sure, they come at a cost, but they've carried us this far. And maybe you feel like you're forced into that choice between what you believe has carried you and what you believe to be right. But Scripture tells us this day that that's a false choice. That the choice between what is tried and true and what is good and right is a false one. Because when the prophet Isaiah says that he's going to reminisce about the past, reminisce about the good old days, about what has saved God's people, he says what has saved God's people is not messengers or angels. It was the presence of God. That God was the one who lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And the same is true with the wise men. What led the wise men to Jesus was not the star. What led the wise men to Jesus was not the scribes. What led the wise men to Jesus was the presence of God. Yes, working through the star, yes, working through those scribes, but it was God who brought the wise men to Jesus. And so when the presence of God shows up to the wise men in a dream saying, don't go back the way you came, the wise men aren't forced between choosing what they know and choosing something new. No, the wise men choose to follow what got them there, which is the presence of God telling them, go home by another way. And Joseph, what got Joseph and his family to be prosperous, to be at one time kings of Israel, was not the city of Bethlehem. It was the presence of God. The presence of God working through the people of that city of Bethlehem, by all means, yes. But it was God who brought Ruth to, to Bethlehem. It was God who gave Ruth food and a family. It was God who made David, king of Israel, it was God who brought those gifts to Joseph's doorstep. And so when the presence of God shows up to Joseph in a dream saying, you can't stay here where your ancestors did, you have to go to a new land and a new place, take Jesus with you. Joseph wasn't choosing between something old and true and, and something new. No. Joseph chose what had carried his family through every generation, the presence of God, and he followed where that voice led him to the land of Egypt. And he discovered that it was actually a long family tradition to do this. Joseph is named after the Old Testament character Joseph, who also ends up in the land of Jesus in circumstances he would have rather not had to experience. But there in the land of Egypt, he grows prosperous, and he can care for his family until the day that God leads them out of Egypt. And Jesus and his people, what has saved them genera generation after generation, has never been vengeance. It has always been the presence of God. It has always been the presence of God that has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God did that in Egypt and God did that in Babylon. 
And so as Jesus grows up and hears about the atrocity that the king in Jerusalem did against his family and against his people in Bethlehem, he isn't faced between a choice of going with what is old and what worked in the past and trying something untested and new. No, Jesus, he follows the voice of God. The voice of God that calls him on the cross to relinquish his power to forgive those who tried to kill him. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, O God, but yours. And in doing so, he discovers that he is following a long line of his Jewish people, from the Hebrew midwives, who simply chose to ignore Pharaoh's orders and say, oh, the kids pop out too fast, we couldn't drown them, sorry. Or even the prophet Jeremiah, who to those exiles in Babylon says, You know what you should do to those people who are forcing you to live in that city you don't want to be in? You should pray for them. You should work for their prosperity. You should build up the city in which you find yourself, for by building them up, you will build yourself up. That is the path that Jesus follows. What brought us this far, my friends, what has carried us to this place, it's not your, your friends or your job or your coping mechanisms. What has carried you this far are not necessarily the, the traditions of your family. It's not their legacy. What has carried us this far is, is not the policies and paradigms of our nation. It has been the presence of God. And yes, God often works through our friends and our family and our nation but God also works sometimes in spite of our family and our friends and our nation. What carries us each and every day is the presence of God. And the presence of God, it comes at a price, it comes at a cost, it comes at the cost of our wealth, it comes at the cost of our security, it comes at the cost of our control, but it never comes at the cost of Christ. It never comes at the cost of sacrificing someone else for our own gain. It comes calling us to sacrifice for the sake of others. For that is the way of Christ. On this day when so many of us are pondering resolutions and goals for the coming year, trying to plan our future and looking back at our past to try to figure out what has worked well to get us to where we are, may remember that it is God who has carried us all the days of old. May we listen to the presence of God. May we follow the way that God calls us to walk, old or new. That is what will return us home. Amen.